Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How's it going? How are, good. How are you doing? <laughs> Simultaneous greetings. We are excited to talk. We are excited to talk. And we're we're running an, an, a night late, easy for me to say. So it's great to talk to you. It's weird to do this on a Monday night. Yeah, likewise. It's great, though. And one of the things I'm excited about is the kind of new rally cry that we introduced in social media this week. Yeah. So last week we introduced this hashtag campaign. Um, We had kind of a blitz introduction of it on Wednesday morning when the show released. And what we're doing is we're sharing um, Facebook comments, Twitter comments. Um, I don't think we got any on Instagram, but Instagram um, posts, if you can do them, whatever. Instagrammers. Anywhere you can use a hashtag. Um, We're going to share comments about how God is reforming his people. Yeah. And And the reason we wanted to do this was because we were just thinking we need to have a place where we can kind of encourage each other with bringing the reformation into our personal lives in obedience to Christ and provide a little edification in the process. So I, I love this idea of this hashtag that's I am reformed and just sharing even the simple things that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life to bring you more into a place where you're trusting and being like in loving Christ. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we are going to share um, one or two. This week we're just going to share one because it's a little bit longer. Um, but we're going to share one or two um, accounts that we get from people uh, each week until we stop getting them. So keep them coming. Uh, it was really encouraging to see them. If you want to search on Twitter or Facebook for that hashtag, um, it's pretty easy to find. So this week we're going to share um, Josh's account. And I'm going to summarize the first part of it, not because it's not great, but just because we don't have a ton of time. So Josh uh, writes about kind of his upbringing in a a kind of typical Arminian dispensationalist evangelical church um, with lots of moralism, um, sort of heavy on the law, light on the gospel. And um, he came to the Reformed faith, uh, he says, about four years ago into a Presbyterian context. And he closes his, um, his, uh, really his testimony here by saying, since that time I've grown in my understanding of the Reformed faith my love for God by his grace and my trust in his sovereignty. Theology finally makes sense. And that is one of the main reasons. Hashtag I am reformed. So it's just a beautiful testimony and a a tribute to the fact that God is still at work reforming his people. So as we come into the the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation, you're going to hear lots of podcasts about the history of the Reformation. You're going to hear lots of um, lectures about the theology of the Reformation. And we want to really, we really want to land on the point that the Reformation continues in the hearts of God's people as his Holy Spirit moves. So join us in this kind of movement that we're starting and we're hoping going to take off um, and share with us just what God is doing in your life. Right on. The best way to celebrate 500th anniversary is really to say it hasn't stopped and it's starting with me again as God does his work. So I am really all about this. And it's about the, I think, as much the little things as it is the big things. I mean, you yeah, could absolutely. hashtag like you just finished reading everything Voss has written. That's fantastic. Or you could just hashtag that you were kind and gentle to somebody when maybe you felt like the situation would have warranted a different response without God's control. So I like this one thing that Ben Daniels tweeted on the Twitter. 
He said, accepting that God is in control of all helps me feel for the first time guarded by peace beyond understanding. Philippians 4, 7. Hashtag, I am reformed. I love that. So it's like these little like testimonies. It's like, do you remember like, um, what was that pop-up video from? Oh, yeah. What, what was that? On VH1. Yeah, VH1. I feel I like this is that. like pop-up re- reformation. Like, like we're just... Pop-up video. Yeah, we should... Man, this is where I wish we did make videos and we could just have like the little pop-up bubbles happening as we talk about how people are being changed and reformed by what God is doing in this this great world that he's created. But yeah. that's that's what I really like about this is it's it's kind of taking command of the internet in a small way, maybe just a little bit of a corner of it, but it's kind of pushing us to recognize in some way that God is still doing his great work. And when I was tweeting this week and thinking about this, I just had a different sense of having my eyes and my ears ready to appreciate and see what God was doing. And that was like a huge transformation just in my thinking. So hashtag I'm reformed. Yeah. Awesome. So Jesse, what are we talking about this week? Oh man, we got a great, great topic. It's actually so great that I don't know which initial initialism to use because we didn't talk about which way we were going to talk about this initialism. So I'm actually going to, well, let's, let's say it has something to do with eternal and subordination and the sun. So I'm going to kick it back to you to, because we didn't decide. So how, how would you abbreviate this and what really is the whole thing? Yeah. So we're talking tonight about, um, we're kind of talking about a controversy that came to a head last summer, um, but really started probably about 20 years before that and actually hasn't really resolved. And what this is, is there's different names for what it's called, but sometimes you hear it called eternal submission of the sun, which is ESS. Sometimes it's eternal functional submission or eternal functional subordination. Uh, If you want to get really fancy, you might call it eternal relationships of authority and submission. There we go. My my favorite uh, initialism for this. And really uh, what what it is, is it's a view of the Trinity, which is um, being kind of deployed in order to support a particular view of the complementarity between men and women. So um, it, it's got a history that we're going to try to unpack a little bit, and it's got a, a recent history that we're going to probably focus a lot of our time on. And then it's, I think it has a present and a future that I think we want to try to touch on as well. And we're talking about it as we when we like to pick things that are interesting to us and we think will be a blessing to our lives and hopefully those who are listening in, not just because it's like intellectually stimulating, but because there are some real outworkings here. And the more that I've kind of come to appreciate, understand what we're talking about here, the more I get kind of fired up for this sense of the Bereans with Paul, that there is a lot of good that comes from undertaking to understand challenging ideas in theology and to test those ideas, even in casual conversation. And that doesn't mean that the person you're speaking with has to be an expert. It's certainly okay to say, like, I just don't know, or this, this I don't understand. And then to spur one another on toward trying to unpack it in a healthy and helpful way. So I think that's where we're going out here, because I know we want to kind of try to understand, not just what does it mean, where does it come from, but then when we take it out of the page and start to see it applied in people's lives or in how we understand genders, which is like a huge ongoing topic in our society, yeah. We, we get to see that this bears some real fruit in our lives or conversely, it can lead us onto a really slippery slope, sometimes even if we're not aware. So it, it's just one of those things we want to bring it up. And yeah, I'm curious to hear kind of where this goes. 
Yeah. So before we start, a couple disclaimers. This this discussion will be on the more technical end of our shows. So if you've listened to our systematic theology sessions, those are at least so far are kind of the most technical that we get. And this is probably going to be somewhere in that range of things. So if you find yourself um, needing to take a break in the uh, technical ones in terms of like pausing it and going and doing something else for a while, this is one of those shows. So just be aware of that. And the other disclaimer I want to give is that Jesse and I are both committed complementarians. So um, there's a there are ways to be complementarians that I think are faulty. But at the end of the day, I'm a complementarian. Jesse's a complementarian. So that's not really what this discussion's about. We're not um, we're not saying that figures like Wayne Grumet, Grudem, Bruce Ware, Owen Strachan, all these different names that are going to come up. We're not saying that they're wrong about being complementarians. We're saying that they're wrong about something else that they're using to support that theology. Does that make sense, Jesse, where we're going? Yeah, that's perfect. Although I realized from now on, totally need to hire a lawyer or one of those dudes from like the Cialis commercial. It gives like all the side effects in the warnings whenever we yeah. give disclaimers in the future. So we, we if, definitely if, should say if you're operating, let's say a backhoe right now, turn off this podcast. Yeah. If, if we do that though, do we have to do the podcast from bathtubs in our backyard though? <laughs> Here's the thing. Nobody knows that we're not doing that right now. That's true. That's true. It's funny. Uh, before we get into this, just another, I don't know why we're talking about erectile dysfunction medication, but I was watching the the newest Cialis commercial. It's almost like they're poking fun at their own bathtub thing That's because great. the newest Cialis commercial is two people who are installing bathtubs in their backyard. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. That's yeah. like really cleverly derivative. That's probably oxymoronic, but... The thing is, the bathtub thing has become like iconic of that commercial, right? Like you actually yeah. know what it is without seeing anything except that image. Yeah, I don't know who sits in their backyard in a bathtub, um, but apparently those people have erectile dysfunction. So maybe it's not such a good idea. <laughs> is, it, is it correlation or causation? I don't know. How do we get off of this? How do I, we move I on? I don't know. I've got so many more things I want to say, but we better just get to this before yeah. it just goes right off. I'm just going to slam this into gear and not try for yeah. any sort of transition. Let's start so, with, with some of the background. So hit, yeah, hit me with that. That's the right place to start. So what we have to remember and what we have to, I think, have to recognize and something that I don't think has been discussed all that much in this arena is the history of how this theology came to be. So um, complementarianism roughly stated now there's some I said as I said there's variation within complementarianism but roughly stated complementarianism argues that within the marriage relationship that men and women play specific roles and that those roles are on some level hardwired into men and women uh, the amount of hardwiring, kind of how that hardwiring happens um, is different depending on who you ask. But those those roles are inherent in such a way that they're not really negotiable. They're built into how marriage is supposed to work and how men are created and how women are created. And so that idea was one of the things that egalitarians, which are the sort of the opposing argument to this, the way that they kind of came at this was to say, see, what you're doing is you're creating a second class of humans that are um, somehow different in nature 
than um, than the other. So men have a have a sink have a nature, and women have a nature. And by nature, they're they would frame it as inferior, but that's not really that's not really fair. But they would frame it as somehow women are of a different nature than men. Right. And so, in order to fight back against that um, accusation or to try to respond to that objection, certain uh, theologians in the complementarian camp, and typically it's people who represent an organization called um, the Council for Man- Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or CBMW. And so, some of the big names in that group are people like, um, at the time, John Piper, um, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware. Um, Owen Strachan is kind of a newer guy. He's a younger theologian. But those those figures started to formulate a response in which they said, well, no, let's let's look at the Trinity. In the Trinity, we have three persons who are of a single nature. They're they're co-equal, but the son is submissive to the father. And so they started to formulate this theory, this theology called the eternal submission of the son. And and as this developed, this is where I think it's dangerous, is it started to work its way into, for example, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book, which was published over 20 years ago, um, or into the study notes of the ESV Study Bible, or even into certain translation like philosophies behind the ESV. So one person who's done a lot of work on this, I don't remember her name, but she has a blog called da- Daughter of the Reformation. And she's done a lot of work looking at different study Bibles and different translations and showing how this theology has sort of subtly worked its way into these study notes and in ways that you probably wouldn't expect. And so this theology kind of pervaded um, subtly, not explicitly, but sort of subtly pervaded the prevailing theology of evangelicalism. And there's a clear distinction between sort of general evangelicals and confessional reformed Christians in this debate. And so the reformed confessional Christians tended not to be as affected by this. I think largely because they're not they're not really spending as much time using study Bibles. They just it's just not the kind of thing that they usually do. They they use other kinds of helps and resources to study the Bible. And then the evangelicals who have have kind of adopted this through the study Bibles and then as their pastors were coming into the pulpit Um, The evangelicals tended to be studying Grant Wayne Grudem's systematic theology in seminary. And then in reformed seminaries, confessional seminaries, they're using things um, like Bovink and more classical reform sources. So you have kind of these two strains of thought. And what happened last summer is this came to a head. And so there was a couple articles that were fired off. Um, on the Mortification of Spin blog over at the Alliance of Confessing, Confessing Evangelicals um, that kind of kicked off this controversy where I, I think Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware particularly were kind of called to account for this theology. And so that's where we got to last summer. And there was a lot of really interesting conversation. But where I want to spend most of our time tonight, I think, is talking about the actual theological problems that this caused, because it's still an issue that's ongoing. This wasn't resolved. There's still a disagreement. Um, Contrary to what you might read, Wayne Grudem didn't change his position at the ETS conference last year. In a lot of ways, he actually doubled down and, and reinforced it even stronger. So I think one of the things that concerns me is that this controversy happened and then we all kind of forgot about it. And that's a recipe for disaster is where we're, we're seeing something that a lot of people pointed out as really problematic and really dangerous. And I think rightfully so, but then we just sort of forgot about it. 
Does that, are you, are you tracking kind of with where we came from and where we're going? Yeah, that's a good summary. I mean, so here's how I understand this concept and I want to throw it out there to you both for critique and because I think it might be helpful uh, to define some of the terms that we're using so that we can kind of move forward with great grace and strength. So the first thing I want to say about this is what's interesting to me about this as a person that unlike you, like I'm not as well versed in like theological circles in terms of like high end or technical theology, especially online. And yet this is something like even I was aware of. So it's interesting to me that this was born out of a desire to understand the relationship between men and women in their roles under God. And so we fitted or others fitted a theology around what they saw happening with the roles of men and women in home and church. So it kind of, to me, it almost seems like we're moving in the wrong direction. We're, we're letting something here inform something there. But, you know, I agree with you. So my understanding is, you know, complementarians generally, they're going to believe that God's created men and women with as equal image bearers of God, but they have differ, different roles in the church and the home. Right. And what's weird is then some are going to argue that a hierarchy in the church or the home necessarily means that one gender is less valuable than the other. But if you're a complementarian and you can prove that there's a hierarchy in the, here's some big words. I think I'm using these right. You tell me, Petoni. If, if you can prove that there's a hierarchy in the eminent ontological trinity, then those people are going to win because if a hierarchy exists among the three persons of God and these three persons are equally God, then God created men and women equal yet with differing roles in church and the home. So that's kind of how, how I understand like the birthing of that idea. Is that fair? Yep. And that's exactly right. That's a perfect summary of the argument that they're making. So their their argument, and we'll get into what some of the problems are, both from why their argument doesn't work and then also what are some of the problematic kind of outflows of those argument. But their argument is exactly as you've constructed it, that um, it, it can't be the case that a um, a submission of roles or a voluntary um, placing of oneself under another, even, even that's inherent in your relationship that could not be any other way, Right. that that cannot mean that there is somehow a subordination of nature because the son is eternally subordinate. And I'm saying this in their voice. Uh, this is not what I think, but they're saying the son is subordinate to the father eternally or submissive to the father eternally, but is not submissive or subordinate by nature. And so that that's their argument. And on the surface, it actually has sort of an air of uh, credibility. It, it, it seems right. It wants to exactly. sound right. And there was a time where I said, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, and then I started to study the Trinity a little bit more in depth. And I started to realize that there were some, some main areas that um, the problem manifests in, that this actually reveals and is a symptom of more fundamental problems in their Trinitarian theology. And that was one of the things that came out during this controversy that I think was um, instructive, but also really concerning is that there are, there are more foundational issues. You know, we've used the analogy of a pyramid in systematic theology that you have kind of your first level and then you build on that level and then you build on that level. And, and the higher up in the pyramid you get, the less um, significant it is if you make a mistake. Right. And so what this revealed is that these men, Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware are the people that I've looked at most closely. Um, they have some major issues in their very first level in their theology proper that the doctrine of who God is that have caused them to to sort of not see some of the problems that their theology of eternal functional submission or whatever you want to call it has. 
Um, and so the main areas is that they implicitly deny divine simplicity, which is the idea that the, the divine nature is utterly indivisible. Um, they have this implicit uh, denial that the son and the father are of the same nature. And then they have this um, sort of weird understanding that the father is somehow unilaterally able to act apart from the son. And those are all things that it, when you really boil them down, it denies the Trinity as the church has always understood it. And that's like a major issue that yeah. nobody really brought up until this controversy came into play. And to be honest, um, shame on us as reformed confessional Christians, and I don't mean you and me, but shame on us who ignored this and let it slide. It's not as though we haven't read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And this is there. It's not like this is some new theology. Is Wayne Grudem's theology that Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he said in his systematic theology, he compared the father to a husband, the son to a wife, and the Holy Spirit to the child of that union. That's straight up blasphemous. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to get bogged down in making decisions about Wayne Grudem's salvation or Bruce Ware's salvation, but that is straight up just impious blasphemy. And I don't think it was intentional, but it just wasn't careful. And we can very often take God's name in vain simply by being sloppy about how we use it. And I think this is an example of it, is that by using that analogy, he essentially made the the Holy Spirit a product of the unity of the father and the son. And even if you want to adopt that unity language, the Holy Spirit isn't a product of the unity. The Holy Spirit is what unites the father and the the son. It's, it's the exact opposite of what he postulated exactly. in classic Western theology. And so uh, what I want to spend a little bit of time on is just detailing some of the specifics about where this problem is. And I'll be transparent is Um, this podcast episode is a direct response to conversations that I've had in the last week where this topic came up and people are still arguing that this is okay. So this controversy has not died down. It has not gone away and people still don't understand the stakes in the game. And that's really troubling to me. Yeah. So because the stakes are high and I agree with you that we need to understand this fully, let's, as we get into like the problem, I want to hear from you, like, let's parse out some of the words. Cause I noticed that you keep using particular words and yep. I want to make sure that we understand like what those mean. So even when I said imminent ontological, we, we need to talk about that, but you keep saying eternal. So why yeah. is it significant that that carries that name? Well, I actually think that the use of the term eternal is a confusing use of the term right? because, um, it's better to talk about the, the Trinity in terms of economic and ontological. You're stealing so the, all my points, just so you know. Like that, I was going to say that next, but yeah, sorry. No. But but this um, is this is like the heart of it, right? That's why I want people to know that we're not saying like there is no division or there is no. Um, I hate to use the same words. There is no submission under volition, right? But it's in an economic way. That's then that's a different thing. So so sorry. Go ahead with that. Exactly. So the economic Trinity, loosely speaking is the way that God acts, the way that the persons of the Trinity act and reveal themselves in redemption, um, in in acts that are out, oriented outside of the Trinity. So creation, redemption, um, punishment of sin, all of these things that the, the persons of the Trinity are doing externally, that's the economic Trinity. It's what we see. It's, it's everything, almost everything that we see in scripture is the economic trinity. The ontological trinity is the way that God 
the way that the Trinity is in itself, the very nature of the Trinity. And we know almost nothing about the ontological Trinity. Only the, we have bare, we have fleeting glances of what the ontological Trinity looks like in scripture. Um, and though that's, that's the problem is that that's why eternal, I think confuses the issue is because when we talk about eternal, usually all we mean by eternal are the things that happened before creation. And there are things that happened before creation that properly speaking are economic things. So we've talked about the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is is confusing and complicated because in some ways it's one part economic and one part ontological. But what God did in the in the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis is the persons of the Trinity agreed on a plan of redemption. And so that's an economic activity because it has nothing to do with how they relate to each other. It's not it's not something about how the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to themselves apart from consideration of creation. It's what the Father, Son, and Spirit purpose to do outside of themselves, oriented outside. So those are other terms that we have to understand is the idea of add extra or to the outside mm-hmm. and add intra or to the inside. So when we're talking about add intra activities or operations, the only thing that we can talk about with ad intra is the relations between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the, pros, the, the, the eternal generation or eternal begottenness of the Son, the eternal procession of the Spirit. So if you haven't listened to our um, Trinitarian theology one or the Christology episode or the Holy Spirit episode, go back and listen to those because I think we're going to assume some of that knowledge as we go forward. But we have to lock those terms in place. We can't that the the whole issue here is a confusion of those realities. Yeah, that's well said. That's the linchpin. So it was really helpful for me to understand that what we're talking about here is the discussion is over who God is versus what God does and how he does it. Exactly. And we're getting a confusion of these two. So the ESS is going to purport that the son's submission to the father is ontological and not merely a function of the economic trinity. And even that sounds like a mouthful, but there's a lot of good like meat in there to wrestle on. And yeah. and that's where, like I said, there's a lot of room for even people like me to be able to try to test this, understand what are the logical outworkings. Like why why is this error such a problem? And I, I think we're, yeah, we're moving in that direction. So, so let's keep going. Yeah. And so the other thing that I think is important is um, when you build a pyramid, I've never built a pyramid, but when you build something, you don't build the um, you don't build the the bottom structure in order to justify the top structure. Generally speaking, so you build the base in order to sustain the top, but you don't your your development of the base is not driven by what the top is going to look like. Right. In in general terms, and so that's that's where some of this problem came in. And I, I would love to do like a doctoral dissertation on this. But when you look at this, what this is, is the complementarians of the time were faced with an objection. And rather than step back and look at that objection and handle it on its own merits, they said, let's take our doctrine of the Trinity. And in many ways, they shaped their doctrine right. of the Trinity around this problem. And so their doctrine of the Trinity actually is at a higher level in the pyramid than their complementarianism. So complementarianism is their base and they've developed their tri- their trinitarian theology and their christological theology and their pneumatology. They've b- developed that at a later point in the system. Right. And anytime that God is not the start of your system, you're already off course. 
right? You've already departed from any sort of rational, reasonable Christian theology because you're no longer making God the center of your theology. You're making him and you're making the father, the son and the spirit um, a a prop for your actual theology that you're trying to advocate. Right. And I know that sounds like strong language, but when you see the ways that this has been has been defended and you see that even questioning this, and this is why I brought that disclaimer up in the beginning, even questioning that this was a proper way to start your theology has in the past um, elicited accusations of liberalism or accusations of egalitarianism or accusations of collusion with the enemy and those kinds of things. And that's, I mean, that's really unfortunate, but it shows you where, what they're really interested in defending is complementarianism. They're not really interested in defending an Orthodox view of the Trinity. They're interested in supporting and defending complementarianism. And that's really, really troubling. Yeah. That's the part that I almost can't believe because these are, are learned people. So their approach to constructing the argument is very smart in that they're making an argument from the greater to the lesser, but they're using the lesser to inform the greater or to exactly. build the greater. So if we're working in Microsoft Excel, all I can think of is like circular reference. Only like two people yep. are going to get that, but that this is exactly what's happening. So if you're going to use the human relationship of the father and the son as a model for the relationship between God, the father and God, the son, then what we have is like this line of teaching is that because the son submits to the father from all eternity and for all eternity, he's doing that in his essence, like by, how should we say this besides ontological? That's really, everybody should be using the word ontological because it's great at parties and like (laughs) any other event. But what bothers me when I was really starting to understand this was that they're making a statement about essence. And when we start making a strong statement about the essence of God, which you've already kind of said that, we have to tread lightly there because our information is sparse in many ways, except for the excellent podcast that we did basically on the trade. <laughs> but absent that, um, this is not promoting like functional subordination and right. inequality of, of nature or essence. It's making arguments for, and this gets back to that initialism used before, which is my favorite authority in submission as inherent in the nature of God as father and son. And that blows me away. And then we might right. ask, well, that's a really strong statement and like you're coming with big guns. So tell me, where is it that you go to the scriptures to really vet that, prove that out? And then we kind of find out, well, this is in response to a problem I have with trying to reconcile gender relationships and roles and responsibility. And sometimes even in my mind, it's like a philosophical argument about yeah. how men and women can be equal, but have different roles. And if they have different roles then they can't be equal. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, where I mean, in this particular issue, like, where do you think we we come to terms with the balance between understanding that yes, theology should inform and help us to some extent resolve issues like this without making our issues make our theology? Yeah, and so that's I mean, that's exactly the problem. You you nailed it. That this is a this is a theology that has been built in response to philosophical questions. And we have, uh, I shouldn't say we, I have been hard on William Lane Craig publicly on this podcast. And part of the problem with William Lane Craig's theology is he starts with an apologetic question or challenge and he structures theology around that rather than starting with the revelation of God in the scripture and moving forward from there. And so um, the, the first kind of major theological problem that the EFS position runs into is, is what we're circling around here is that it creates a dis, a difference in the essence of the father 
from the essence of the son. That is to say the father's nature is different than the son's nature. And here's how it plays out is that the, the eternal functional subordination position will say that it is of the very nature of a father. I've heard them use that language of the very nature of a father to be an authority. Right. And it's of the very nature of the son to be submissive. And what I cannot fathom how they don't understand is that you're literally saying the father has the attribute of, of authority in his nature and the son has the attribute of submission in his nature. How in the world are you not seeing that those are different natures? I mean, you're using the word nature. So, and, and all that I can come up with is that anytime I've had that conversation and I point that out, the response is, well, I'm using the word nature differently. Well, but are you though? You're not. You're saying fundamental to what it means to be God as father is authority and fundamental to what it means to be God as son is submission. And so you're basically saying those two people or those two persons don't have the same nature. And the Holy Spirit, as he so often does, just kind of gets like left to the side in this conversation. And I guess in this case, like it's not so bad that he gets left to the side because it's he's being blasphemed and that's really bad. Um, so he's not being blasphemed because he's being ignored, I guess. He, he's, um, getting, he's like getting caught up in like indirect blaspheming. Like yeah, exactly. Collateral blaspheming. Yeah. So that's the first way that this really falls off the rails and it falls off the rails in like the first sentence. Yeah, it's fast. Is is that you've now created a trinity of three persons who have different natures. Well, that's tritheism. That's literally right. three persons, three different natures. That's definition of tritheism. Um, and so that's that's probably the most straightforward on the surface problem of this whole system is the imbalance. And it's exactly, ironically, it's exactly proving the objection that the complement or the egalitarians had in the first place. It's like they said, well, you're making the fa- you're making the husband and wife of different natures. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know. How's it go on the internet? Hold my beer. Let me show you something I can do. And they make God, they make the father and son of different natures. It's almost like they're reinforcing the objection. Um, And I I don't know how to explain it. Bruce Ware is not stupid. Wayne Grudem is not stupid. They're not, they're not uneducated or untrained individuals. Um, I don't know how to explain it other than they have an overriding concern that allows them or forces them to sort of push that problem below the surface. And as I said, they're interested in defending their complementarianism, not in defending the orthodoxy of their Trinitarianism. And the only reason that they came forward and defended the orthodoxy of their Trinitarianism was because they couldn't maintain their complementarianism without doing so. And I mean, that's a really scary, scary moment. Right. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm not also sometimes subject to the idea that I let my earthly understanding of a concept be the primary filter or sieve through which sometimes they inadvertently let the scriptures pass and then try to redefine or without doing much work, I just say, well, it must be this way. And the thing, example I've given before that I've, I fell into this for many years was the concept of marriage. And, and I still see like so many books about marriage that speak about Christ and the church with the presupposition of physical marriage between a husband and a wife, which there are parallels, but which came first? Like, which is the greater? So all this stuff where we're trying to say, well, well, marriage is having more date nights out. Like, yeah, that's that's great. But that's not the reason why God gave it to us so that we could just be happy together. I mean, Jesus doesn't really, I don't think, want you to be 
the best you. He wants you to be more like him. And certainly he doesn't want you to just do what makes you happy because what makes us happy is dumb and um, just myopic. So my issue with this, and this is where, like you said, I I really struggle because those dudes are like wicked smart. Like they're really smart. So either I'm totally in different wavelengths, but like for me, like boots on the ground, trying to live out faith and with maybe a limited theological knowledge, quite honestly, because these guys are just on like another level. Um, What I still can't get around is how it seems to me that it's always dangerous when somebody uses their presuppositions as a starting point when interpreting scripture. And this is like classical eisegesis. So my thought would be like, if you take a standard EFSS or ESS or what is the other one? E-R-A-S. ERAS. If you take one of those statements and one of your, your good brothers and sisters in Christ just threw that out and it came up on your Facebook feed, you would probably be like, yo, man, what's up with that statement? That, yeah, that's that's really weird. And so here we have like if you if we would be prone to say, like, what are you talking about there? Like, to your point, we kind of should be at least for ourselves saying, like, what are these guys talking about? Because we need to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And so that that kind of brings me to the next major concern or next major place that this goes off the rails is that this ends up um, this ends up with a denial of divine simplicity. And as we talked about in the Trinitarian episode, divine simplicity is really what makes us monotheist, is that even though there's three persons, they share a single indivisible nature. And this comes up in two ways. So if you step back and you think about what submission actually is, if you were to get a definition of it, it would include two parties and it would include one party who um, is acquiescing to the other's will uh, in order to bring about resolution. So there's there's two parties that are in some ways at odds with each other. And that conflict is resolved by one party um, allowing their will to take the back seat and acquiescing to the other. So if you and I wanted to go see a movie and you wanted to go see Iron Man and I wanted to go see Spider-Man, I might submit to your will by saying, you know what, I'm going to just swallow my pride and we're going to go see Iron Man instead, even though we all know that Spider-Man is a much better superhero, right? How did I get like the bad end of that example? <laughs> I had nothing to do with this. But but that therein lies the rub, right? right? Is that you have you have to have two wills in order for submission to work, right? If if instead we affirm the orthodox trinitarian position that there is a single will which is shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there can never be no. There can never be no. There can never be an initial conflict. Right. So there's no such thing as acquiescence in the Trinity because the Trinity is always in agreement because there's only one will. And so by by postulating um, submission, you have to postulate a hypothetical conflict that has to be resolved. That's the definition of what submission is. And an example to show how how this functions is um, if I wanted to go see Iron Man. And you said, Tony, let's go see Iron Man. And I said, great, let's go see Iron Man. I'm not submitting to you in any way because I'm already doing what I wanted to do. We already were in agreement. There was no conflict. There was no acquiescence. And so the very idea of submission between two parties implies two wills. And if we have two wills, we have two gods. Yes. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Yes. But then this this um, this comes forward in more explicit ways in Bruce Ware's work. So I want to read 
uh, two quotes here that um, were originally brought to the front by Todd Pruitt, who was one of the main figures in this initial one. And so this is a quote from a book that Dr. Ware published in 2005 titled Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. And I haven't read this book, but I trust that Todd has. Here we go. Let's get after it. So these both appear on page 57. They're not continuous. I don't know exactly where they appear in relation to each other. But the first quote is, in many ways, quote, what we see here of the father choosing not to work unilaterally, but to accomplish his work through the son or through the spirit extends into his relationship to us. Does God need us to do his work? Does God need us to help others grow in Christ? Does God need us to proclaim the gospel so that others hear the good news and are saved? The answer is an emphatic no. He doesn't need any of us to do this work. Being omnipotent and sovereign ruler over all, he would merely have to speak and whatever he willed would be done. No, the humbling fact is that God doesn't need any of those whom he calls into his service. And then later on the page, he says, it is not as though the father is unable to work unilaterally, but rather he chose to involve the son and the spirit. The silence is deafening on that (laughs) because I'm not even sure where to start with that. Right. But he um, he's literally saying that the father could have acted the entire plan of salvation without the son and the spirit that he called the son and spirit into his service in a way that's analogous to how he calls us into his service. So if you note, he's doing the same thing here. He's got a, he's got an anthropological point or a soteriological point he wants to prove. And he pushes that back into the Trinity. And so he has now eliminated the idea that the father, son and spirit always work together in, in anything outside of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Right. The ad extra cannot be divided is a classic theological principle that goes back to the earliest testimony of the church. The earliest Trinitarian reflection is that the father, the son and the spirit always work as one because they are one. So right. to say that they could work not as one is to say they are not one. Right. It's a straight line. It's a straight line between those two points. Mm-hmm. And he says it explicitly. The father chose to involve the son and the spirit and he was able to do otherwise. That's tritheism, folks. There's no way around it. Now, I don't think Bruce Ware recognized that. He doesn't think he's a tritheist. But um, there are a lot of people who think things that aren't true. And it's really sad that he doesn't realize this. And it's really sad that him and, and Wayne Grudem doubled down at ETS last year. They actually said, if you don't agree with them, then you are the heretic. Mm-hmm. That's That's a terrible thing to say. It's just obstinate at that point. Yeah, there, there's a lot here that's kind of sad. It, it's really hard to take in because, again, you can be sincere and you can also be sincerely wrong. Exactly. So, And this is one of those things I have to wonder, and this sometimes happens to us when we are Reformed, is we just get lost in our own words. We're trying to explain something and then we just find ourselves in too deep. And sometimes it's hard to come back from that. But So what I hear you saying, like as you read that quote, as you explained it, is in speaking of the simplicity that God is not composed of any parts. So, I mean, that's obvious when we think of him physically, but because he, he has not corporal parts, but that's right. also going to include like any metaphysical meaning. So he is not a composite of essence and existence. He just is. Right. And so I, I agree. Like even here, I hadn't heard that quote before. So the problem that I had with it was like the continual use of the word unilateral, which to yeah. me, when I hear that, the first thing, as nerdy as that sounds, that comes to my mind is insurance of financial contracts 
which usually involve two wills coming together, and whenever you use the word unilateral, you're asserting that one has the one will has the power. Not only is the, are you you implying or impounding that there are two different ones at odds, could be at odds with each other, but obviously unilateral meaning acting independently is showing that right. one will supersedes or has power over the other. So you're talking about disunity to begin with, and you're talking about separation. And I don't know how we can get away from that because even though, like you said, he's not being super explicit, but it's not as if he's hiding where he's going yeah. with this. Because what I wanted to bring up to your point was that what I find, I don't think brave is the right word, like just kind of outrageous about this is these guys are not on the side of what is historic and orthodox in terms right. of their formulations of the Trinity. So yeah. like when we look at almost any creed and confession, especially like the Athanasian creed, Nicene creeds, um, these are were put together by men who had careful study and consideration. And these two guys are standing kind of starkly opposed to that, right? Yeah. Well, and there's a whole other conversation that could and did happen about their use of historic sources. And I'm not trying to be flippant here, but um, my study, my academic discipline was in history and um, it was proven hands down that they don't know what they're doing in terms of historical sourcing. Um, they used quotes that actually argued against their position as though they were arguing for it and they just didn't recognize that. And so there's one other point in this quote that I want to I want to draw out and it ties into the first issue, this, this natural distinction or the difference of essence between the father and the son is if you look in this quote, there are two types of persons. There are those who are above the sovereignty line and there are those who are below the sovereignty line, right? There's the sovereign and there's those who the sovereign is sovereign over. And the way that it should work in Christian theology is above the sovereignty line is the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And below the sovereignty line is the creature. But if you read right. this quote, the son and the spirit appear on this side of the sovereignty line with us in relation to the father. Yeah, true. So the father, the, I guess you could say there's three there's three types. There's the father who's sovereign over all. Then there's the son and the spirit who are sovereign over all creatures, but subject to the father, which is exactly what they're saying. They're eternally subject to the father. And then there's creatures. And if you think that I'm uh, just reading into this, here's another quote from page 51, which is earlier in that chapter um, from Bruce Ware. He says, quote, the father is supreme over all. And in particular, he is supreme within the Godhead as the highest authority and the one deserving of ultimate praise. And then he goes on on page 55, though the father is supreme, he often provides his work through the son and the Holy Spirit to accomplish. For though the father is supreme, though he has in Trinitarian order the place of highest authority and the place of highest honor, yet he chooses to do his work in many cases through the son and through the spirit rather than unilaterally. unilaterally. So it. It's not the case that they're not being explicit. Bruce Ware is explicitly saying that the Father is worthy of more worship than the Son and the Spirit, that the Father is worthy of more honor than the Son or the Spirit, that the Father has more authority, presumably over creation, but also over the Son and the Spirit than the Son and the Spirit do. And presumably, I guess if you follow that logic out, he would probably subordinate the Spirit even further to the Son. So you have a full three-part hierarchy. That's called Arianism. I mean, the only thing you have to add to that to get Arianism proper is that the son's a creature. Right. But other than that, every part of Arianism is present. 
So I, I don't, I mean, I don't know that we need to like continue to harp on this. I want to make sure we leave some time to move forward into like, what are the, what are the practical outflows of this? And what do we do? What do we do moving forward? How do we solve it? No, let's just keep harping for another hour. This is, <laughs> this is great. Although I really wish you had read the explicit quote before I said that he implied it only. <laughs> well, it's okay though. But like, that's, that's the problem though, is I hadn't read any of these quotes. I haven't read that book, but you know who has tons God. of people in seminaries. Oh, sorry. Everybody who's taken, I mean, I have friends who are, I don't want to say names because it could affect their grade and their ability to graduate, but I have friends who are studying at uh, seminaries where Owen Strachan teaches and where Bruce Ware teaches, and they are taught this stuff in course, and they are tested to say on test that this is truth, and they are forced to read these books. So these are not, these are not ethereal things. These are men that are going to be pastors someday who are being taught that they should preach this to the congregation. Right. That that's, that's dangerous and that's scary. And these are people that it's conceivable that if they argued this in class, they might receive a failing grade for arguing for the truth of Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. It just got real. I it's mean, heavy. It, yeah, it is heavy. And, and that's why I like the idea of thinking about, okay, so where do we go? Because we talked about it and if it is real, if it is heavy, if it does impact not only how we think about God and to your point with that last quote, like how we worship God and what, what can be more important in this life besides coming under the sovereignty of, of Jesus Christ by way of salvation, what can be more important than how we understand how we worship God? So, so go, where, where do we go from here? Yeah. So I want to, I want to, um, highlight two things. I want to point out one practical outflow of this. And then I want to highlight where I think the, um, the way forward is and sneak peek spoiler, uh, the reform confessions and the Nicene creed is the answer to where we go for this. But, um, one practical outflow and one that I've seen in play is that women are being told that their husband is sovereign over they are in a way that's analogous to the way that God is sovereign over Christ and that, uh, that God is sovereign over creation, right? Remember there's the sovereignty line and the father is sovereign over all, including Christ and the spirit and all of creation. And so women are being told that their husbands particularly are sovereign over them in a way that's analogous to the way the father is sovereign over creation. And that is downright dangerous. That's not actually even complementarianism. That's patriarchy. Right. And it, it it comes out in patriarchal movements. And these arguments are used by people who advocate things like disciplining your wife corporally, right? There are people who advocate spanking your wife with a paddle if she doesn't, um, if she doesn't wash the dishes right away. I mean, it's, it's almost laughable. It would be laughable if it wasn't so sad. That is crazy because that's not something I'm that familiar, but you can see how it does grow out of this like, like how, how is that not the Trump card? Like if, if it is, having, and that's the problem. Yeah. If you're having a conversation with your wife and, and let's say you and I have very loving wives, even if I was to try to go this route and say like, well, the reason for my authority is because this is how we see it played out in the Trinity. And we talk about the dividing line that I don't see how that's complimentary at all anymore. Like, like you said, this is affirming the very thing that we thought was so dangerous to begin with. Exactly. Yeah, it's affirming a difference in nature between men and women. And the next, the, the other logical outflow of this is that even though complementarianism, properly speaking, restricts, and some people disagree with this, but I don't, I don't think that they really are correct, is it, the restriction is the relationship between a, a man and his wife, 
right? A specific relationship between one man and his wife, and then also the relationship between a pastor and the church and whether or not men can fill the pulpit and can fill ordained office roles. That's complementarianism. I don't, I don't understand that when you're actually reinforcing this natural difference between men and women, how you don't end up in a place where all men are, are, um, ontologically authority over women, over all women. And that's why where it becomes patriarchy is it's not just a man and his wife. It's now all men as authority over all women. And I will tell you what, if you try to tell my wife what to do, uh, and you have not, uh, talked to me about that and you try to act as an authority over her, you're going to have a problem with me. The same way that most parents, if you try to act as an authority over their children and you don't have a relationship there already, there's going to be a problem because as a husband, it is my responsibility to guard and protect my wife and to wash her in the word. It is not anyone else's responsibility in terms of that kind of relationship of authority and submission. And that authority is a sacrificial um, self-giving submission, not an external, I'm going to stand over here on the sidelines and tell you what to do kind of submission. And so I, I get really worked up and I, I try to stay calm on this subject, but it makes me angry on a theological level, but it makes me angry on a personal caring for people level. And it's really, really hurting the church and hurting the people, particularly the women of the church. And that's not okay with me. No, it's not okay with me either. And the yeah. thing that's tricky about this is it seems subtle or it seems like it's so far back behind the curtain that it's actually not doing any harm. So there is helpfulness in drawing this out, which is what we're trying to do. This is where I think we need to come to terms with the fact that not all theology is egg-headed for its own sake. That what we're talking about here does have real implication to how we live and understand. And it comes into our home. So like in one sense, I can understand somebody negating this by saying, well, what you guys are doing is just talking about your armchair theologians, mainly me, I'm speaking for myself. And, and you're just debating a concept and it's nuanced and there's a lot of language and it's tricky, but that doesn't even apply here because when we start talking about how we understand how we should treat our wives, especially during times of conflict or spiritual leadership, if we're thinking this is the right way and then we go and say, see the Bible proof texts me right into this, that this is my authority. This is my rights. That our essences are different. The problem here is we shouldn't be looking for different essences that are like, here's uniquely Holy Spirit essence. Here's uniquely Jesus essence. Here's uniquely the, the Father essence. Exactly. I'm okay if we're, if we're looking at the different functionality in so much as we understand that while there are unique roles played by each of the persons in the Trinity, they are all involved in all the work. And I think that is more beautiful when we start talking about marriage that that we have a role to play in supporting one another and never in a way that starts to divide our essences such that either it's not even just about a value judgment to me. It's about saying it's different because when you say it's different down the line, you will always get a different value, but we're starting with you're different and trying to pretend like it's not going to cause a problem of value or equality. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to, um, I want to point us in a way forward. And so there are probably, there are probably two kinds of people, roughly speaking, listening to this. There are people who have been nodding their head the whole time and cheering us on. And there are people who either turned us off already or have struggled not to turn us off because they're so angry at us. And so here's the way that I want to point us forward is we need to go to the scriptures and we need to study the subject and we need revelation from God to be our starting point. Right on. 
right? And so we need to go to the passages. We haven't had time to talk about um, the passage in Corinthians and how that actually works out. We haven't had time to, to parse all that out. And maybe we'll do another show in a couple weeks to, to do some of that. Maybe we won't. That's not a promise. That's just maybe we will. But we need to go to the scriptures and we need to start with the scriptures and we need to talk this out exegetically. Right. And we need to do that. And then we need to fit that into the context of systematic theology. And that's that's what we have to do. And my sneak peek of that was that that work has already been done for us. That's not saying we shouldn't go back. We shouldn't be Bereans and confirm it. But we should not seek to reinvent the wheel. Amen. Right. New theology is very rarely good theology. And this theology is brand new in the history of the church. Right. In Calvin's day, this would have gotten you burned at the stake. And I'm not saying that to be flippant. I'm saying that to say that's how serious this theology is. Michael Servetus was put to death in Geneva for espousing things that are very similar to what Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware and Owen Strachan and John Piper and Doug Wilson and a whole host of other men have advocated. And the fact that they say that that's not the case does not change that, right? Athanasius was exiled from his pulpit and from his home five times for arguing against the fact that the son was in any way subject or subordinate to the father according to his divine nature. And so by doing this, we are throwing away the entire history of interpretation in order to what? prove a theory about men and women that already is problematic when you start with um, with essences to actually prove the egalitarian right what are we doing right so that's where I want to advise and encourage me and you and all of our listeners and anyone who comes across this is we have to go to the Bible but we have to trust that the men who have formulated theology in the past were not idiots and they didn't just miss this stuff they right. could be wrong They could have been wrong, but the Nicene Creed is a test of orthodoxy that has stood basically unchallenged for 1,700 years. That is a significant thing that we should not simply disregard. Respect. So here's what we need to do to move forward right now. First, we need to give your arms and hands a rest, Tony, because they're (laughs) flying around on this subject. I need Um, to ice my throat. I'm I'm feeling it. it. But there's a lot of passion here, and that is uh, edifying to me to hear that we're deeply involved in this stuff because it, it means something to how we behave, how we live, how we worship. It's not just ideas. Ideas are great, but what's so much more meaningful is a life that is a lived out in obedience to ideas because they come from the scriptures by God's own breath. So here, here's how people can like join in with this conversation because I really love to hear where other people are at. Even if you've wanted to throw your phone or your listening device at a bulldozer while you've been listening to this like we <laughs> let, let us know about that so you can hit us up on email by sending us a note at reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com you can find us on twitter at reformed brohood and uh, how can people leave us a voicemail tony yeah you can call us at 607-444-BROS which is 2767 bros and um, I, I will make a commitment to anyone listening is unless you use vulgar language I will put publicly anything that we receive. If it's a voicemail, we will play it on the show. If it's a Twitter or or an email, I will publish it somewhere and yeah, make sure that what you have to say, even if it disagrees with me, will be brought to the forefront. Yeah, let's do this. Part of the reason why we started the Reform Brotherhood podcast is so that 
you and I could converse, but that so we could also be part of a growing family of open conversation about this in a way where we can truly exhibit to others that there is a real bond in the family of Christ that allows us to exchange these ideas in a way that's gracious and allows us to let the scriptures have the final sway over everything that we talk about in every place in which we live and breathe and have our being. So yeah. we, I guess we're trying, we want to put our money where our mouth is on that. Yeah. And I want to, I want to close um, with one last thought because there are probably some people sitting, listening to this who are running things they've heard their pastor say through their minds as a filter. And just because your pastor has said something like, um, you know, we know that the father, that the son is obedient to the father, even though they share a nature, just because he says that doesn't mean that he affirms uh, eternal functional subordination. Right. Right. There are wa- there is are ways theologically that those things can be true statements. And that's why I've been so careful to parse out the spe- spe- with with I think probably more specificity than I needed to where the problems actually come in with explicit statements from people like Bruce Ware is that you can say that the son is submissive to the father. You can even say that the son submitted to the father's will in eternity past before creation and not be advocating eternal functional subordination. Yes. Right. The father appointed the son a task in the covenant of redemption and the son joyfully accepted that task. Right. That's not eternal functional subordination. That's just good old reformed theology. That's good old awesomeness. Um, Right. But you have to be cautious. So don't go accusing your pastor of heresy. If you have a concern, you know, set up a meeting and talk to him. That's, that's the best way to do it. Um, but I don't want to hear about people who are causing rifts in their churches over this and things like that. That's not, uh, that's not healthy. That's not what we're trying to get at. Um, but this is an important issue that I don't think we should just let slide away just because it's not, it's not really the most up-to-date controversy that's going on in the Twitter sphere. Yeah. Let's not drop the H bomb, the heresy bomb on each other at the start of this, because sometimes, like you said, somebody's trying to explain something. And how many times have I done this, even on this podcast where I just slip and I say something dumb, you really have to get the, the essence is the only word I can think of, of what, (laughs) of what somebody is saying. And what we've been clear here to articulate is that Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware are making a clear statement over and over again. They're actually compounding the idea to make it sure and articulate that this is what they believe. So there's not mistaking them, but we could easily mistake each other, especially on if you just, like you said, Tony, something just drops in your mind is like one thing your pastor said, like you you shouldn't just jump to like heresy and uh, and go after that. Have a conversation. Have a conversation like this. Do that this week. That's my recommendation. Yes. Talk to somebody about this. Even if you have to introduce it to them first time and be the teacher, give it a shot. Yeah. And, and talk Absolutely. about it with somebody. And then when you have that conversation and the Lord works mightily, go to your favorite social media platform <laughs> and tag that thing by saying, hashtag, I am reformed. I'm pounding yeah. on a desk right now because I, I so badly <laughs> want us to unite with one another. This isn't about the podcast. I really just want us to be like encouraged. And I just find this yeah. to be such a fun, unique way to kind of just put a tip of your hat or to, to bend the knee in humility and worship to say, I'm reformed. I, I know what God's doing in my life and I'm being aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. So in closing, um, if you're really confused, you are not alone. So I am going to um, load up the show notes for this episode with all sorts of links 
Um, I'm the po- the episode comes out on Wednesday. I'm probably not going to be able to get all of the links pulled together till Thursday or Friday. So check back in a week, but I'm going to load up as many links and references as I can think of and find that I think will help clarify and demonstrate what's going on in this. So check that out and share this episode with somebody, right? This is an episode that I want as many people to listen to, not because I care about the little graph on our feed. I mean, I love our little graph and I love seeing the graph grow and I appreciate every person that listens to the show. Don't even talk to me about graphs. I love some graphs. But more than that, I want people to understand that this is a dangerous topic that needs to be addressed. So share this episode with somebody, share these articles with somebody, get in a conversation with somebody about it. Do it, people. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I-